Pope Francis has declared 2016 an extraordinary year of mercy. So they've unsealed the portals to the greatest basilicas in Rome and at the Vatican. The crowds they're expecting are extraordinary, too. Coming up, we get insider advice on navigating what Rome has to offer in this jubilee year. In order to have the jubilee feeling of your soul, wake up 5.30 in the morning, walk through the city at 6 o'clock. Then you see Rome. Or try a pilgrimage to the scenic town of Siena in Tuscany. It's where St. Catherine changed world history with a letter she wrote as a young girl to Pope Gregory in Avignon. Dear Gregory, this is Catherine from Siena. You need to come back to Rome because I had a vision when I was six, so make it happen. And we take a close look at the significance of Michelangelo's masterpieces, like the Pietà at the Vatican. It's a kind of very human embodiment of a religious sacrament. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. How to get the most of a visit to Rome during this busy jubilee year and a look at how Michelangelo's personality redefined what it meant to be an artist in Renaissance Italy. That's just ahead on today's Italian-flavored edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's start out the hour with Anna Piperato for a look at the importance of patron saints in Italy. Anna's here to tell us why she studied the life of 14th century St. Catherine and then moved to Tuscany to live in Catherine's hometown. Anna, buongiorno. Thank you, grazie. So you live in Siena. And there's saints all around, on the spires, on the squares, on the fountains, filling the churches. What's the role the saints play in the life of of one of your neighbors, for instance, in Siena? Well, today, perhaps the role is not as big as it would have been 500 or 700 years ago. But there is a certain pride knowing that certain saints walked these cobblestones. We are very proud of our saints. And Siena has a lot of homegrown saints, one of whom is incredibly important. Who's that? St. Catherine of Siena. And that's the saint that you were so enamored with that you got your Ph.D. on the subject. What is so special about St. Catherine? St. Catherine of Siena, I'll just, I won't bore you too much with dates, but she was born in 1347. She died in 1380 at the age of 33, just like Christ. And from a very young age, like all saints, she wanted to be Christ-like. At the age of six, she had her first vision of Christ in pontifical robes above San Domenico. This led her to believe that the papacy, which was at the time in France, needed to return to Rome. So this is confusing to a lot of us, but if I understand it correctly, for some reason, the Pope, which had traditionally been in Rome, as we know, went up to France in Avignon. Mm -hmm. And then St. Catherine came on board. What did she do? Yes, well, she had that vision when she was six years old, and then as she grew older, she became very involved in politics. And she wrote letters to noblemen and kings and queens and the Pope, who was at the time Gregory XI. And she said, Dear Gregory, This is Catherine from Siena. You need to come back to Rome because I had a vision when I was six. So make it happen. He invited her to go to Avignon. And you imagine a 14th century woman, let alone you or me today, being invited to the Vatican to see the Pope. Exactly. She went, she made her case, and two years later, he was in Rome. Uh, Sorry, one year later, he was in Rome. In 1376, he returned. In 1378, he died, and a new Pope was elected. But this new Pope was Roman and not French. The French cardinals were upset. They went back to Avignon and said, we're electing our own pope. The Romans are like, no, we're keeping our own pope. Two popes, great schism starts, 1378. 
Thanks, Catherine. Complicated things there, (laughs) St. Catherine. Okay, now tell me just saints in general. What is the definition of a saint, and and why are saints so integral to Catholicism? Well, a saint, of course, is not God. Uh, In Catholicism, it's very important to remember in Christianity that there is the Trinity, but one God, the Father, the Son, Mm -hmm. the Holy Ghost. In Catholicism, the Virgin Mary also plays a very important role, but she's not God. She's not a saint. She's something in between. And then you have saints, and saints really act as They don't intercede on our behalf. They haven't got a direct line to God, but they can help us become closer to God. We can emulate their practice to become more Christ-like. Not to be Christ, not to be a saint ourselves, but to be good people. So to inspire us. To inspire us. To set a good example. Exactly. Many of the saints are Italian. Yes. Is that just because a lot of the popes are Italian until modern times? I think so. So it's not that Italians are more saintly than other people. They just hope to You've met Italians, Rick. We love them, but come on. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So now, from a Catholic point of view, you've got the Virgin Mary, Mm -hmm. and you've also got the saints, Yes. and you've got God. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the utility of a saint? Do you appeal to a saint to appeal to the Virgin Mary to appeal to God? or In some cases, yes. But in some cases, if you've got a problem that's relatively minor, you lose your keys, you pray to St. Anthony. He helps you out. You don't need to bother the Virgin. You don't need to bother God. He can help you out. So there's an appropriate saint for whatever your problem may be. There's a lot of saints. How many saints would you imagine there are? You know, it changes because sometimes they get desainted if people don't think they're holy enough or they're just not granting any more miracles, and they get their halo taken off. But there are hundreds and hundreds of saints. I understand there's a saint for each day. Yes. And you are Anna, and Saint Anna would be your patron saint? Yes. What what is her day? Uh, The 26th of July is my onomastico, my name saint day. So if if you are uh, respecting the whole idea of saints, you kind of have two birthdays? Yes, in a way, yes. Everyone says, Bon Anomastico. The first (laughs) time, what? Huh? What? Nobody knows your birthday, but everyone knows your name. So they know your Onomastico. So they'll know what your name is. Exactly. And are most Italians named after a saint? In general, yes. The traditional names, Anna, Sara, Old Testament names, New Testament names, so many Marias, Anna Maria. Anna, of course, is the mother of Mary. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about saints with somebody who knows a lot about saints. Anna Pepperato got her Ph.D. in St. Catherine, and she's a professor of art. She lives in Siena. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Deborah's calling in from Paxton in Massachusetts. Deborah, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks so much for taking my call. It had occurred to me I had visited my cousin in Montanata, and we were out strolling the street for Passeggiata, and he was very happy to point out to me the statue of Padre Pio and pointed out that as we traveled throughout Italy to look because we would notice that the villages all in southern Italy all had a similar homage to Padre Pio. And, of course, he was from the Gorgano Peninsula, not far from Montanata. And it's such a beautiful area there. And I think that many tourists, at least American tourists, really only come to that area if they are, in fact, doing a pilgrimage. The Gorgano Peninsula is in uh, the south of Italy, is that right? Yes, yes. And it's quite, you know, kind of very rugged beauty and very untouched. The Italians, that's where they go for their August holiday. Mm-hmm. And so it is very much geared for tourism, and but the American tourists still have not found it, unless they, in fact, are there for a, a pilgrimage. So now Padre and, Pio, um, you'll, you'll see his uh, uh, altars and, and uh, special corners dedicated to him in churches all over Italy, but especially in the South. I, I know in Naples a lot. This is a, a good example of a, of a saint from our own generation, basically. Yes. 
Well, as the caller said, it's a, where he's from is a beautiful area. Beaches are great for tourism, but saints are better. Saints have been bringing tourists from all over. So we called them pilgrims before. Pilgrims, but. yeah. So a lot of people will go to Padre Pio's They're uh, good for business, yeah. For that. Padre Pio, what was he known for? Well, he was, he, so he was a quote-unquote humble man. I don't want to offend any listeners here, but I don't know much about him. But one of his famous traits is he received the stigmata, or he claims that he did. Uh-huh. And he would go around with his bandages on his hands. And the stigmata are proof that you are Christ-like. Okay. And St. Catherine had them. Is Padre Pio already a saint, or is he on the yes. road to saint? So he is a he saint. He has been made a saint. He's one of our newest saints. And this stigmata is very interesting. So this is a mark of uh, the intensity of your faith and your devotion, that you would yes. feel the suffering of Jesus on the cross to the degree that you would actually physically get the marks of the cross on your body. Yes. Or in Catherine's case, they were invisible, which was slightly problematic, but she felt the pain in her hands and her feet and her side. The wounds that Christ received on the cross, she received them as well. So St. Francis famously He was the first stigmatic. Yes. Stigmatic, that's the word. And did Padre Pio actually have the stigmata? Was he a stigmatic? (laughs) Well, let's just say it's a very delicate issue. So I will leave it up to you to decide. And you can read about all the little ointments that he kept in his house that maybe provided some sort of (laughs) scar. Sort of helped it along. Exactly. Well, that's, (laughs) Deborah, any other thoughts on uh, Padre Pio and Gorgano? Well, my question was, is I was surprised when we knew we were going to visit there because I had family there. My grandfather had been born there, so I was my own bit of a, of a pilgrimage. But I was surprised how very little there was available about the Gargano Peninsula and was just wondering why is it it seems that that's been Ignored, not basically. really uh, highlighted. Yeah, now this is the Gargano Peninsula, G-O-R-G-A-N-O. It's, it's in the south of Italy, and I think it's ignored because it probably didn't have the the money and the importance in the old days, and there's nothing to look at that would compete with the culture you would find in Assisi or Siena or Rome or Florence. If I'm a tourist and you tell me to go to Gorgano, I'm going to be enjoying some pretty humble towns and some beautiful scenery, and scenery is not unique to Gorgano. It's more of an Italian, yeah, a proper holiday destination for an Italian family who wants to relax and get away from it. When we come to Italy, we want to see things. Yeah, I think that's our take on it, Deborah. Hey, thanks for your call. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Anna Piperato from Siena is our guide to the saints of Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Anna, there are countless saints. I mean, first of all, name a couple of uh, saints' days that would be celebrated in Italy with enthusiasm. Oh, gosh. Well, in Siena, my city, Sant'Ansano, St. Ansanas, he was the baptizer of the Sienese. He brought Christianity to the region. So every 1st of December, there is a huge procession in his honor that goes to the Duomo. There's a wonderful mass. And it's a really fun thing to participate in. And then uh, St. John the Baptist would be a big saint. Yes. And you know what? We love him in Siena, too, because he's the patron saint of Florence. But we have his arm. You have the arm of St. John we the Baptist? We do. And we, we, we put it on display and kind of laugh at the Florentines, so even to this day. So that's little dig at the Florentines yes. for centuries. And who's the patron saint of Siena? We have loads. We have Ansanos, Crescentius, Sabinus, and Victor, Catherine, and Bernardino. Wow. Now, St. Catherine's a big deal because she has a, a very close association with Siena. Yes. Well, she's from Siena. She walked the same streets that we walk on when we visit. And she's also the patron saint of Italy and the patron saint of Europe. 
Saint so she's Catherine. a big deal. Wow, she is a big deal. John Paul II declared her the patron saint of Europe for unification, even though she may have helped cause the great schism of the West. Now, she also- why would she have been declared the saint? Because I think St. Benedict was a big deal because he established mm-hmm. all the monasteries, yep. which kind of tied Europe together in the in the chaos of uh, after Rome fell. Yes. So he could be like Mr. Europe. Yes. What is it about? What would be the excuse to make St. Catherine the saint of Europe? She really wanted people to work together. She was always searching for peace. When Florence was excommunicated, even though Florence was the enemy of Siena, she wrote to the Pope on their behalf. There you go. Are you a Catholic? No, I'm not. What do saints mean to you? You've spent so much of your life studying saints and and obviously quite enthusiastic about saints. I I do love my saints. I love all saints, but I especially love the early modern saints. That is, saints that we know existed. We know their families. We know where they came from, what they did before they became a holy person. So when you walk to St. Catherine's house... Maybe a few cobblestones have been replaced over the years, but she walked those same streets. And she inspired people centuries ago? Yes. If you go to to her house or if you go to the Basilica of San Francesco in Assisi to visit St. Francis, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you believe. People have gone there believing, and there is an energy in these spaces that I find fascinating, and I get those goosebumps again. I find myself often quite moved in these places of worship. Very nice. Anna Piperato, thank you so much for a little insight into saints and uh, an Italian appreciation of saints. <laughs> thank you. Grazie mille. Get an insider's guide to the best of Rome this year and a look at the revolutionary life of Michelangelo. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The Papal Declaration of a Special Jubilee Year has inspired people from around the world to include Rome in their 2016 travels. To help you enjoy what makes Rome so special without the crowds getting on your nerves, we're joined by three tour guides who specialize in showing Americans the marvels of the Eternal City. Italian-American Nina Bernardo has lived in Rome for two decades. Ben Cameron splits his time between the U.S. and Rome. And Cecilia Botai lives in her apartment in the big city and in her family's winery a little bit to the north in Umbria. Nina, Cecilia, and Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thanks, Thank you. So, Nina Bernardo, you uh, you ventured over to Italy 20 years ago. You decided to uh, stay. What happened? I decided to stay because I got sucked into Italian life. <laughs> How do you get sucked into Italian life? Well, I spent my first year there, it just felt like I was on vacation. I was working, but I just felt like I was on vacation. I love the pace of it. I love the human uh-huh. interaction. It was great. There's was, something about Italy that really is people to There's people. a very tangible energy that you feel. It's a little bit chaotic. It's a little, there's a little bit of a closer than comfort sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, and if you don't like that, you can always go to Denmark. But I kind of thrived here. <laughs> I kind of thrived on the energy. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of the uh, the definition of a different kind of traveler. Certain people thrive on Italy. Some people really Italy, like it, and, and some people it makes them anxious, and they just yeah would rather be in Switzerland. Now you ended up in Rome. Why, Rome's the big brutal city. I mean, it, why did you end up in Rome as opposed to? I moved around from smaller to bigger, mm-hmm. and I realized I really wanted to live in a big city that had a lot to offer culturally. And so I'm glad I ended up there. And I've been there seven years now, and I'm still getting to know the city. Seven it's got years. a lot of great neighborhoods. So, what are the great joys, and uh, on the other hand, what are the great frustrations of an American living in Rome? The biggest frustration is the traffic. 
it makes it an urban jungle and, a, and kind of a car park. Mm-hmm. But the biggest joys are every time, and I ride my bike around the city, every time I get on my bike and go around the city, there's always something interesting to see. It is just a beautiful city. Now we're talking about what's new in Rome. Riding a bike around Rome, that sounds new. Is Rome actually working to make it a more bike-friendly place? Or, or <laughs> are you just, uh, are you just a, a crazy... An American when, with a bike and, and when I first started riding uh, regularly five years ago, there were just a few of us. Now there are just a few more. There are a lot of organizations that are trying to make it more bike friendly, but there's a big, you know, car lobby and there's very little political will to do it. But we are trying very hard to they make tried the it bike friendly. Bike share like they did in Paris, and it was a complete well, they flop. These, yeah, they forgot the bikes, to put in bike lanes. Everybody stole the bikes. Yeah, the bikes were stolen. Oh, that's one of those things where you have fifty bikes parked at these yeah, stalls, and you can right. grab one and kind of borrow it and park it somewhere else. And most people weren't crazy enough to take them yeah, up on it. Yeah, people are justifiably <laughs> <a special> afraid. <laughs> so you, no, they learn their lesson. That right. doesn't work in Rome. Do you wear a helmet when you're biking around in Rome? No, I don't. That would mess up your hair. You, you, yeah, good, exactly. How, how am I going to try to look like an Italian woman with a helmet on? That's you know, not going to work. You, you sort of lowered your eyes in shame because, you know, Americans just, they just cannot handle somebody. I, that, I hope my mother doesn't hear this. <laughs> But you're in Italy. Your hair's got to blow in the wind. Is that exactly? <laughs> I try to wear high heels whenever I ride. <laughs> that's a sight when you're in Italy, not just on bicycles, but you got the the motorino culture. The oh Vespas, yeah, right? absolutely. Cecilia, when you think about Italy and, and the motorbikes, what's new? How's that changing? Because I know there are environmental and noise pollution concerns and so on. Uh, when you grew up in Italy, uh, Vespas were everywhere. Little wasps—that's the word for Vespa, right? Yeah, I had one. I had two. I had three. I had four. I had uncountable. The first one I had was not even a Vespa; it was a Chow. That is hello. <laughs> and the first day I had it was the day after I was old enough to be allowed to drive it. And now, how old would that be? Uh, fourteen and one day. Fourteen and one day. So you were yes. right on the road with your Chow. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very frequent mean of transportation in Rome. My husband has one. Because due to traffic, you can go around the city much easier and the zigzag, which is not acceptable in other countries, but that's the only way to survive, probably. So Nina's major frustration is uh, traffic, and for you, you just hop on a Vespa or a Motorino and you zigzag through the traffic. Well, not just me. 66,000 people in Rome drive a scooter. And I thought they it was 600,000 scooters in Rome. 600,000, 66,000. Like it is. It's something 100, crazy. Like so it's a, it's an, it's lots a, of people. It's a lot of people. The only problem is that sometimes they're stolen. And, of course, uh, it's not very safe, but it's one of the ways that people used to go from A to B. No, it used and to so, be quite noisy. I remember it was just trying to sleep because the, the word Vespa is literally wasp, wasp, right? So you have the buzzing of these going around. Uh-huh. Has there been a movement to make quieter motorinos? Well, more than a movement, there has been a lobby, and now they have to be less noisy. They are more controlled, and they have also changed in shape. They are more than Vespas. There's not just Vespa. You have other right. other brands. So part so of affluence. There's yeah, absolutely. In the old days, it was a very simple, this is just yeah. your Vespa. It was also a sort of a sexy thing, a, a very stylish thing. Different people would be proud of their, of their motor scooter. They still do. There is a new one that is made with leather, covered with leather, marinated in wine. You might not know that. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Italy. Yeah. you got to love it. Of course. I won't tell you where the wine Why comes from. Why wouldn't you want to live there? You know, Italy <laughs> is also the country where they're using the remnants from the winemaking process to make biofuels, isn't it? Absolutely, you know, yes. Wine is good for everything. <laughs> so if you want to buy yourself an overexpensive Vespa, you can buy that version. But you have to buy it 
at a specific place where they put the leather on and there is a winery that marinates the leather. Of course, it's, a, it's just thing. to I'll show people. Yeah, they feed the cows right. a diet yes, of wine. Of course. <laughs> I want one. <laughs> it's naturally tinted purple. So, Ben, you've been in Rome for almost 10 years off and on. Uh, what's your take on the Vespa culture, the Motorino culture? I'm a sane person, so I would never try it, nor would I ever ride a bike in Rome. But I would go outside. You know, Nina, one of the great things that I know you'd like to do is go out to some of the parks and go out to some of the more rural areas, which isn't too hard to get to. No, easy very to get easy to, to get to. It's a completely different city that a lot of tourists right. don't see. I, I can think a little more sanity with the Vespa if you're out in the parks and in the, in the yeah. periphery of the city. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Rome. We're joined by three Roman tour guides, Ben Cameron, Cecilia Botai, Nina Bernardo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Dave is calling in from Beaver Creek, Ohio. Dave, thanks for joining us. And uh, what are you thinking about as far as Rome in the coming year? Hi there, yes, we're planning on a trip in September, and uh, notice that this has been declared the Vatican Jubilee, and wonder if there was any special things that we should definitely see while we're there to help commemorate that. Yeah, Pope Francis has declared this an extraordinary year. It's, uh, I understand there's been only 26 Jubilee years since there's been a Pope in the last 2,000 years, and every once in a while they do one out of sequence, and this year, until November 20th, we have a Jubilee year, and it happens to be on the 50th anniversary of the close of Vatican II, and it's pretty important in the Catholic world. Cecilia, can you describe what is a Jubilee year and why it's important to Catholics? A Jubilee is meant uh, to be a year where you review your, let's say, personal sins and feelings. You want to get rid of them, converting in attitude, and then when you finish that, you go through one of the several holy doors and you are restarting a new lifestyle, which is based more on a good behavior. Well, that says a lot to me. So it's like a New Year's resolution from a spiritual point of view. Absolutely. You can start fresh. Historically, people have had to go to Rome to go through the holy door and, and they'll get their indulgences, their forgiveness. They'll get less time in purgatory and all that sort of stuff. But this is what the Pope is calling a year of mercy and considering the economic hard times around the Catholic world and, and beyond. It's an economic hardship for a devout Catholic to go to Rome, so they're allowing people to get the same benefits by going through holy doors in their own country. Is that right? Absolutely. Not only that, there are many churches, even in Rome, that you have the possibility to go visit and go through another holy door, and you get a new a soul. New, sorry. A new soul. A new soul. So it's a new beginning. It's a it's, new beginning. And, that, that, that's what... Uh, that's something to celebrate. And uh, the last extraordinary uh, jubilee year was, I believe, in the year 2000 with John Paul II. That was actually a normal one. It used What's to be that? every 50 years and then they shortened it to every, once every 25. Years. Oh, it is. So it, it happens on the quarter century normally. Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, 2000 was the first time since the Iron Curtain came down for the first time with uh, John Paul II. Obviously, all the Poles could come Oh, that uh, was a Polish big, population. That was huge so deal. millions of people came through, and that's that's kind of the fear that this year there was going to be an increase in tourism. Yeah, because that is. I mean, I remember last year when they announced this, people were blindsided. It's like yeah. Francis didn't even run it by anybody, and suddenly 2016 is going to be chaotic, and it's going to last all the way until November 20th of 2016. Ben, how has it been shaking out as far as the crowd situation that people anticipated with the whole year? I think because of just what Cecilia said, that a lot of people have decided to stay home, and it's early, so time will tell. But uh, historically, the big tourist season starts in Easter and goes till October, and I think you can anticipate much bigger crowds. Mm -hmm. So more important than ever to make reservations. Uh, check the Vatican website for special goings on. 
Most of it's going to be in St. Peter's, the Vatican City itself, but also the other churches like Santa Maria Maggiore and St. Paul outside the walls and St. John Lateran. So it is important to remember when you go to Rome, uh, everybody just thinks uh, St. Peter's Basilica. But what are the... No, there are other patriarchal basilicas. There are other like uh, Vatican territories, literally, in that country. And they're very, very important churches. What are they? Right. So St. Paul outside the walls and St. Mary Major and St. John Lateran are also churches that can be visited as pilgrims. And you're having what we would consider the same experience of walking through a a holy door. And all of those give you a a similar sense of majesty and and wonder. Oh, of course they do. Absolutely. And they're all wonderful, amazing churches with amazing works of art as well. St. John and Lateran, you have the Holy Stairs right next door that a lot of pilgrims will go right, to. Right, exactly. And, oh, I bet the Holy Stairs are going to be crowded. Yeah. yeah, these are the stairs that people climb on their knees saying the, the Lord's Prayer, I think, mm-hmm. on each step to earn these favors from a Roman Catholic perspective that have been brought back by Emperor Constantine's mother from, from the Holy Land. I think the thing to do is to check the Vatican website and anticipate closures. I think that uh, with some of the celebrations going on, that, that right. things and will be closed Right, and just remember to be flexible. Yeah. And so if maybe mm-hmm. exactly patience. where you want to go is, yeah, is you not available. Be, yeah, you, you have, have to be, <laughs> you can't travel to Rome without being patient right. and flexible. So <laughs> here are, here you need a double dose of it. Here are two Americans that have adopted Rome and uh, patience and flexibility. <laughs> yeah. Very important. Cannot exist there. Uh, Dave in Ohio, does that give you some ideas for the Vatican Jubilee year? Yes. Is there some specific things that maybe are not touristy that uh, we should want to participate or, or take advantage of that's maybe more of a local flair? In relation to the, uh, the Jubilee year, you mean? Yes, yes. Tachilio, what do you if somebody's going to Rome because of the Jubilee year, what activities would they want to have on their list? Well, personally, I would do not only the main churches. I would do other churches that are as beautiful as the ones which are the churches of and for the Jubilee, but are still churches. Mm-hmm. San Clemente, mm, fantastic. That's a church and an archaeological site at the same time. And what I would do probably in order to have the Jubilee feeling of your soul, mm-hmm. have a very, very early walk through the city. Wake up 5.30 in the morning, walk through the city at 6 o'clock. Then you see Rome. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And then you have a real contact, heaven and yourself, whatever is your belief. I love that idea because otherwise Rome can be just intense and honking horns and chaos. But if you get up early, crack Very up. early. St. Peter's at 7 o'clock in the morning is a different story than it is. It's a different experience That's a very completely. spiritual experience. Yeah, because it's would, empty. Yeah. It's really... I was help guiding a, a Catholic school group once through Rome, and, and their priest brought them to St. Peter's, to the Basilica San Pedro... 7 o'clock in the morning, and I've never enjoyed the Basilica as much. Doing a nice walk through the city at 7 o'clock, starting at Trevi Fountain, oh. going past the Spanish Steps, ending up over it. I mean, it's gorgeous yeah, at that time. Amazing. Nobody's out. All you right. see the city waking up, and, and it's a different city. Yeah. So crowd avoidance this year especially, I think, is, there, is key. There you go, Dave. Thanks for your call. That sounds great. Thanks. I appreciate you guys' help. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Cecilia Botai, Ben Cameron, and Nina Bernardo. We're talking about Rome. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Carolyn Vernon Hills, Illinois, has emailed us, and she writes, My daughter and I are planning a trip to Italy. It's our first time to Europe. In this coming September, do we need to use a tour group to obtain optimal seats for the Wednesday general audience of the Pope? What time do you suggest arriving before the 10.30 audience? So each Wednesday, the Pope makes a general audience, I understand, and you can get tickets 
Uh, you guys have groups. Tickets are free. Yeah. Tickets are free. How do from you get the Vatican. The yeah, there from are Santa Susanna Church, places. which is the American church in Rome. Okay, so there's a St. Susanna Church, which is not at the Vatican, but it's no. over closer to the train station. But if you find St. Susanna Church, it's like an English language arm of the Catholic Church, like a, like a service, and they're wonderful there. They have a great website, really nice people. Santa Susanna. Yeah, it's you just can a email matter them of ordering. in advance. Yeah, yeah, the tickets and then picking them up. You the can leave a donation. The tour groups are free tickets. You don't get any special access. It's the same access, and, and there's really, I don't see any need to do it. It's not worth it. Just get there early, maybe 8 o'clock in the morning. Okay, so the general audience with the Pope, Wednesday morning, every Wednesday morning, book it in advance via the web and mm. pick it up at Santa Susana Church. Usually you pick it up the day before. You pick them up on Tuesday evenings, but check right. the website for the latest thing. And, and then set. the little trick that I have, if you want to sit, that's fine, but if you just want to, you have to get there really early if you want to sit because you have mm-hmm. to go through security, and you know, we're talking 10, 20, 30,000. Well, this year it's going to be 30, 40,000 mm-hmm. people probably. But if you want a great photo, mm-hmm. you can stick to the back and just find the place where the Pope Mobile goes through because that's what happens about 945. He'll roll out in the Pope Mobile, make a circuit through the square. And then the real secret is you find a spot where there's lots of babies because he always stops and holds the yeah. baby. That's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah. A great so you kind of stick find right. the babies. Yeah, you can, you can find the, you, Could you, can you see hire the a baby for the day? Yeah. <laughs> Pick a little doll. Yeah. 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 He'll stop it. Well, that's you can, get, that's you a great can idea. get within five, 10 feet. And the audience, how long does that actually take? About an hour. About, About an, an hour. hour. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you're out, you're in the square, uh, the big yeah, circular square. They're going to be there in September. I mean, make sure to bring water and reading yeah. material. There's yeah, reading material. It's and you can there for two go hours. in and out if you want to have a seat and someone mm-hmm. can save your seat. You can go in and out if you need to get a coffee or use okay. the restroom. You know, this brings up another topic. It's just crowds. And I've noticed all over Europe there's some more crowds. We have this dynamic of emerging economies. There's 100 million people in India and in China that now have enough money emerging middle classes to buy a plane ticket to Europe and they've dreamed of coming to Europe and they don't have a very um, sophisticated understanding of what Europe has to offer any more than I would have a sophisticated understanding of what China would have to offer. They'll go to the most famous places and one of those would be the Vatican. Uh, You know, one of those would be the Colosseum. So you've got long lines of people from different economies around the world. Plus, you've got this huge cruise industry, and any cruise itinerary generally covers Rome. They stop at Civitavecchia, one hour on the train, and you're in downtown Rome. There are a lot of big lines with lots of big groups. You have to make reservations. So let's talk about this. Just huge crowd frustrations. If you're on the ball and make reservations in advance, you can get around them. Ben, what's your advice? Well, a couple of things. Vatican, you have to reserve in advance. The Vatican Museum. Museum, excuse me, yeah. The church, you can Which then also gives you, that's Sistine Chapel as a part Mm -hmm. of that. Also, on Friday evenings during peak season, they, they open late, and that tends to be a lot less crowded. So you're talking about the Vatican Museum, and that's the only way to get to the Sistine Chapel. Correct. And when you get to the Sistine Chapel, there is a little door in the back that lets you slip out with the tour groups. It's designed for tour groups. Uh, but It's designed for tour groups, but if you're an individual that kind of gets in with a group, you could slip out with them into St. Peter's, then you don't have to wait in the line. But to go to the St. Peter's Basilica itself, it's just a big, famous church with lots of security. And if yep. you're there in the middle of the day, the security is going to back things up. If you go very early or very late, you're more likely to get in without a long wait at They security. don't allow tour groups after 4.30, 5 o'clock, is it? So it tends to be less crowded after 5 o'clock, the, and it's usually up until 7. So there's a big bottleneck there, and you can get around either of those uh, if you're thinking in advance. And then when it comes to the Colosseum and the Forum, those would be big uh, challenges. Definitely make a reservation. And they've opened up a couple of new Forum entrances. So choose to go into one of the newly opened entrances, maybe the one near the Palatine Hill. 
or the one on the Via Fori in Piriale. For the Roman Forum? Does that the Roman Forum. And it's the same ticket that'll get you into the Coliseum, but maybe okay, so try the, to get in to do that and then get in to do the Coliseum. I would add more than making a reservation. You can make a reservation and pick up your ticket at the site, but then you still have to wait in the same queue. If you book your ticket and print it out in advance, you can skip that queue. Or you, you can buy the Roma Pass for, what is it, 35 euros? It's right. good for two days. So a, a sightseeing pass that covers yeah. the big sites in the city. And, and then Skip you, the line. You need to be a little bit aggressive and walk mm. right up to the front of the line. Yeah. And at a lot of these sites, there are entrepreneurial tour guides that have an inside track, and they sell their tour, mm-hmm. and people buy it in order to be able to jump the line and go with that mm-hmm. tour guide straight in. You can also, at the Coliseum, the other thing you can do is pay five euros for the audio tour, and you can skip the line. There's a special entrance line for that. Is, and you is, don't even have to listen to the audio tour. Is that right? Cecilia Botai, any other tips about handling the crowds in Rome? Well, as they said, make reservations for the Colosseum. You can also buy that combo ticket, which you buy at the Diocletian Bats. You have your ticket, you do the Diocletian Bats, you can do the Forum, you can do the Colosseum. Try to get up as early as possible in the morning and try really to organize your day because St. Peter, after five, no groups, less people, very early in the morning, nobody. If you have the tickets already, you skip the line in the Colosseum. So this is a city that is a, a city where the more you organize yourself, the better you enjoy it because it's a, a fantastic city. But needs organization because it's not a city. That is a metropolis. <laughs> to handle the chaos of Rome, you need organization. You need to plan ahead. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Nina Bernardo, Ben Cameron, and Cecilia Botai about enjoying Rome during this jubilee year. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Rick. Mille grazie. Prego. Don't let the crowds keep you from viewing the incredible art Michelangelo created in Rome or in Florence. His works changed how the world sees itself. Up next, we take a closer look at how Michelangelo's revolutionary life is also reflected in his masterpieces. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Sono Ferenc Mate, io viaggio sempre con Rick Steves. I'm uh, Ferenc Mate from Montalcino, Tuscany, and I travel with Rick Steves. The masterpieces Michelangelo Buonarroti created 500 years ago are the pinnacle of Renaissance art. Author Miles J. Unger explores how Michelangelo revolutionized the role of the artist as seen in six of his greatest works. He's written Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explain what Michelangelo's works can tell us about his remarkable life and times. Miles, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. What a fun project to trace Michelangelo's life through his six greatest masterpieces. And rather than jumping right into the Pietà, you start your book with a, a cranky exchange between Michelangelo and uh, his patron, where Michelangelo makes it clear he's not just a, a worker for hire, not just a painter or a sculptor. He was different. Uh, why did you start the book this way, and how was he different? Well, I wanted to set the tone for Michelangelo and the way that he transformed, I think, the role of the artist. He came out of a tradition where artists were seen generally as craftsmen and servants of the great lords who paid for the work and served as their patrons. And Michelangelo's great achievement beyond the great masterpieces he's left us is to really transform the notion of what an artist could be. And Michelangelo himself was very aware of this, and he he made it clear that he's not one of these artists who sort of hung up a shingle and sort of advertised, you know, Madonnas by the square foot. <laughs> he considered himself a very different kind of artist. And I think that this comes in part from his own pride at what he saw was his own aristocratic pedigree. Ah. He believed himself to be, 
a descendant. His, this is the myth his father told, that he was a descendant of the great counts of Canossa, and therefore, if he were to be an artist, he had to be an artist of a different kind, one who was really much more aristocratic, much more a worker of the mind than, uh-huh. of the, than a kind of craftsman who worked with his hands. And he was on the cusp of the modern age. I mean, it's interesting to think of all the stuff that was happening around the year 1500, and in a lot of ways it really was the end of the Middle Ages and the start of the modern age. When you analyze Michelangelo and Leonardo, who were both sort of in the class of 1500 there in Florence, how do they differ in their approach to creativity and art? Well, Leonardo was the other great figure of the time who was transforming the notion of what an artist could be. But Leonardo's personality was much more reticent, much more mysterious. Uh, He was an introvert, at least in his art. He did not carry out his battle uh, in much the same public way that Michelangelo did. He kept a lot of his stuff. He played it very close to the vest, whereas Michelangelo was constantly feuding with his patrons and demanding more of them and demanding independence. Leonardo was a sort of inscrutable, mysterious figure who was revered, but he did not have that kind of same muscular, sort of combative personality that Michelangelo had that demanded respect (laughs) and demanded that he be given control over the creative aspects of his work. It's interesting you wrote that, uh, well, Michelangelo never married. Art was his wife, and his works of art were his children. We think about a genius, and then people distinguish a genius and a Renaissance genius. How is a Renaissance genius different than simply a genius? Well, the cliché of the Renaissance man is somebody who's a master in many areas, and certainly he was. uh, Michelangelo was a, a master sculptor, a master painter, a master architect. He was not quite the Renaissance man in the way that Leonardo was, who was very much interested in science for its own sake. Of the two great artists, they were both sort of wonderfully skilled in their understand and, and knowledgeable in their understanding of anatomy in particular. But for Michelangelo, that was a means to an end. It was a means of sort of creating bodies that were more expressive, more realistic, more convincing. But for Leonardo, it was sort of an end in itself. He would dissect bodies to understand the workings of the circulatory system. So Michelangelo by today's standards, was certainly a a master of many skills, but not in quite the same sense that one would say that Leonardo was or Mm -hmm. or that Leon Battista Alberti was, who was both a sort of writer and intellectual philosopher. Uh, Michelangelo was much more narrowly focused. And the six works of art that you uh, feature in your book, Michelangelo, A Life and Six Masterpieces, uh, some of them are paintings, some of them are statues, and and one of them, of course, is St. Peter's Basilica, architecture. So he was a master in all those fields. Now, in your book, you chronicle Michelangelo's life through these six works, the Pietà, David, Sistine Ceiling, the Medici Tombs, the Last Judgment, back at the Sistine Chapel again, and the Basilica of St. Peter's. And that is all chronological from earliest works to latest works. Let's talk about each just for a minute and why you chose them, the Pietà. First of all, literally, what is a Pietà? A Pietà is a image of the Virgin with the dead Christ on her lap. And it was a form that was popular first in Northern Europe, and it was part of a movement that uh, tried to create a more personal, more emotionally engaging religious iconography. So it's a very, it's not only illustrates a religious theme and illustrates the 
theology of the redemption, but it does so in a way that most people can immediately relate to. So a masterpiece in the Renaissance, as opposed to some hired piece in the Middle Ages, would show a believably dead Jesus on his mother's lap, taken down off of the cross. That's kind of the theological point, isn't it? Jesus died. In a way, it is the sort of equivalent in human and sculptural forms of the sacrament of the Eucharist, in particularly in Michelangelo's interpretation, where you see Mary's sort of very rhetorical gesture where she opens her hands and sort of presents the body of Christ, very much like the priest would raise the consecrated wafer in hmm. Mass. So it, it's a kind of very human embodiment of a religious sacrament. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Miles Unger, and he's the author of Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. Miles's website is milesjunger.com. In his book, he features uh, six great masterpieces by Michelangelo, first the Pietà, and then David. Miles, when you look into David's eyes, standing there in Florence, what do you see? What do you think when you look right into the eyes of David? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not that tall. <laughs> okay. a, little hard to, a little hard to see right into his eyes. What I think one of the, the sort of brilliant uh, innovations of the David is that Michelangelo, unlike most of his predecessors, and if you go to Florence, there are wonderful sculptures by Verrocchio and particularly Donatello showing the young David with Goliath, but they show David after he's already won, after he's already victorious, standing on the head of the dead Goliath, mm -hmm. whereas Michelangelo shows David before the battle, sort of looking over his shoulder at the approach of the coming giant and sort of with his stern look, not exactly apprehensive, but sort of Sizing attentive and, and full of this sort of fierce concentration. Right. And I think that's what gives this lovely, beautiful image of the male human body, but it gives it this kind of power, this sort of glance over the shoulder at the approaching confrontation. And I think that's what sort of gives it its life and its meaning. Just give a little review of the history of the statue itself. Where was it intended to be, and uh, where did it end up, and, and what's it been through? I think one of the things I mentioned in the book is that there are two ways to see David and Florence. One is to see a very adequate copy in its original site right in front of the Palazzo Vecchio, which is the main square in Florence right in front of the old, what used to be the capital of Florence, the seat of government right outside the door, the entrance door to that building and then sort of go into the academia where you can see the original, which is beautifully finished, and the, all those sort of fine sculptural subtleties are there. But you need to see it in both senses, because mm -hmm. it really was a work meant to be seen in the civic space. It was a work of patriotic propaganda, in a way. It was meant to sort of steal the Florentine people to rise up and fight their many foes, both internal and external. So it was a work that was meant to participate in this civic arena as a kind of uh, rallying point for the Florentine people. And when you see it in the museum, which you certainly should do as well, it sort of becomes just this beautiful aesthetic object. Mm -hmm. uh, in a way, taken out of the, that context, it loses one of those crucial dimensions that I think make it such a powerful work. So is art with an agenda, and again, it's important to know the context and who paid for it and why. The next masterpiece that you talk about in your book, Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces, is the Sistine ceiling, the creation scene. And of course, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is the story of creation from Genesis. And to me, this is sort of a celebration of humanism. You have Adam and God right there in the center, the famous iconic picture of uh, God giving Adam the spark of life. 
What is humanism, and, and how does that relate to Michelangelo, and, and how is that a part of this age, the early 16th century? Well, humanism is intellectual movement associated with the Renaissance. It was a, a movement of scholars, most of them very deeply interested in the ancient world, the sort of pre-Christian world, the pre-Christian writers, Aristotle and Plato and Cicero. And it was the belief that the world should revolve around human values and that these were sort of the central features of life. Of course, Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling is based on a Christian story, but it's based on a Christian story and it's interpreted in a way that gives a central place to man in particular, uh, particularly, you know, everybody remembers perhaps the most famous scene in all of art, God giving the spark of life to man. And in this case, Adam is seen as a kind of perfect being. He's not a cowering creature. He, he is noble. Uh, but in some ways, of course, the uh, Sistine Chapel, if you read it the way it's meant to be read from the scenes of Noah and the deluge and the drunkenness of Noah up through creation. It sort of reverses the arrow of time from creation to the fall of man and man's sin. So in a way, it's reversing the kind of descent uh, into corruption that the Bible usually tells. So in, in a way, it's a hopeful story, at least if it's read in the correct direction, one towards greater perfection before the fall, before mankind's sin, into the perfected world that God created. And that humanism kind of mirrors the confidence and the optimism of that age, I would think, the high Renaissance, when man is made in God's image, and, and the best mm -hmm. way to glorify God is not just to be superstitious and bow down in church, but to use your talents and mm -hmm. do things with that. In the Sistine Chapel, later in his life, he did the Last Judgment. And a lot of people mm -hmm. look at these two and, and don't realize that it's the same chapel, but it's a different age with a different agenda. How is the Last Judgment, this giant statue with Jesus coming down on Judgment Day and his fist raised as people are going to hell and people are going to heaven and Mary is right next to him cowering like there's nothing I can do now to help you. Mm -hmm. How is that from a, a different time and a different psychology than, than the very um, positive and confident uh, Sistine ceiling? One of the things that happened in the interim, the uh, Sistine ceiling was completed in 1512 in 1527, there was one of the great atrocities ever perpetrated on European soil, the uh, sack of Rome, in which the troops of the, the armies of the Emperor Charles V, many of whom were Protestants from Germany, came down and stormed the walls and basically destroyed the city and m much of the population. And so when Michelangelo, a few years later, is called upon to do the last judgment, the mood was simply different. Mm -hmm. It was a much darker age. The world seems to be uh, involved in this great cataclysm. Even Michelangelo himself, he includes himself as this, the flayed skin of St. Bartholomew, depicting himself in a sort of horrific image, which you don't know whether he is one of the raised or one of the damned. And this whole sort of personal wrestling with salvation is very much a sort of it's almost takes like, the temperature of the time. It's like uh, it's related to Luther's whole struggle, and it's interesting how you write in what 1541 it was unveiled to howls of rage, and it and people were looking for sacraments and ritual and clarity during that Counter Reformation time of insecurity and confusion, and it almost stresses the Luther sort of you're you're, you're saved through faith rather than works, and uh, that must have been a heady time. 
Miles J. Unger writes about the big M's of the Italian Renaissance, Machiavelli, Lorenzo di Medici, and Michelangelo, a life in six masterpieces, which is now available in paperback. His website is milesjunger.com. Now, Michelangelo's last great work is in the last chapter in your book, uh, the last piece of art you feature is the Basilica of St. Peter's. Michelangelo was an old man at this time, and he took this gig to actually design the greatest dome in Christendom, St. Peter's Basilica, ultimately taller than a football field on end. Why did Michelangelo take this, and and what were his preconditions? I think one of the reasons he took it, it was the most prestigious commission in the world, being the capo maestro of the greatest building project in Europe, certainly, and, and probably in the world at the time. And he also was a deeply religious man himself, and he felt this was sort of the crowning achievement on a career which he dedicated both to his art but also to his God. Also, I think it he couldn't stand seeing other people mess things up. And he thought hmm. that, that things had gone very wrong. And he was one of these people who thought all his life that if you want to do something right, you'd better do it yourself. So when he was offered the chance by uh, Pope Paul IV, he seized upon it, though, as usual, he played the reluctant suitor. Uh, but he was clearly interested in doing this. Hmm. And um, he took it on without presumably taking a salary, though he was by then a wealthy man and and was well compensated in other ways. But it was really his effort to sort of dedicate the last decades of his life to God and to his own salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also, you know, he was at a point in his life where it was difficult to sculpt and difficult to paint. Uh, he was old and frail. And working with his mind, as an mm-hmm. architect does, seemed a, a Physical, more pleasant way to make a, better, a living. A better way make, to do his work in his last a living, decade. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Miles J. Unger. His book is Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. And, Miles, you must have had so many beautiful moments with Michelangelo's art as you uh, researched and wrote this book. Let's finish off our discussion just with maybe your favorite Michelangelo moment of all these beautiful works of art we've talked about. Well, I, I think like many people, I am drawn to many of the unfinished works. You go to the Academia in Florence, and uh, of course, everybody goes to see the David. But as you're walking towards the David, you see these wonderful works where the form is only half emerging from the block. And I think not only does this give you insight into, you sort of feel a closer connection to the artist at work. Sometimes a work like the David or the Pietà is so perfect, you sort of feel shut out. But I think with these captives, you really get drawn in and you see the way that Michelangelo sort of feels his way through the stone to find mm. the, the living form within. And I think for me, these are some of the most moving mm. experiences of Michelangelo. It kind of gives uh, you uh, intimacy with the artist and the genius, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can even see the claw marks of the chisel that he used, the so-called right. gradina, that chisel that sort of caresses the stone. And I think these are just, and, and for even for his contemporaries, this was unusual he was the first artist who was revered to the extent that his unfinished or or damaged works were still treasured. And that's why we have so many of them, because nobody wanted to throw them out. They were just too, people valued them too highly. And I find them deeply moving and, hmm. and wonderfully expressive. And the, that sort of sense of the figure sort of struggling with this, this sort of inchoate mass around him is, uh, I think, truly gripping. And the beautiful thing today, 500 years later, is that all of these masterpieces that you've been talking about and and were so inspired by can be enjoyed and and seen by any of us uh, simply by going to Florence and Rome. Miles J. Unger, 
Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. Thanks for writing this book, and thanks for sharing your insights into this uh, amazing artist with us. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Last night I dreamed about you I dreamed that you were riding On a blood-red painted pony Up where the heavens were dividing And the angels turned ashes He came tumbling with him to the earth So far Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to WGBH Boston for studio help this week. You can listen again on demand on our website. Each week's show also includes guest information and helpful web links. And when you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves in our online affiliate listings. Look for the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.